Okay, so I'm Lee, and I'm here with Elizabeth, and it's all your idea. I'm going to put it all on you that, okay. to do this podcast to introduce the Enneagram. Yeah, so my name is Elizabeth Chapin, and Lee and I live in Austin, Texas, and we studied under Suzanne Stabile, yep. who teaches the Enneagram in Dallas. We were what do you call it? Apprentices, Apprentices under her for three years. Mm-hmm. And we both have, well, Lee has actually been teaching to various groups since then, but I have been very resistant to teaching it at all. Yes. We feel like we never could know enough to teach. Right. We've said that over and over again the last several years that. True. How could we do this? Yes. Yeah. Partly withdrawing stance. Because we are doing stuff. repressed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, we did teach recently to a group, and then it's usually an all-day thing, right? Mm-hmm. To, to know your number is an all-day affair. It's usually eight hours. The last time we did it was five, five, which was kind of awesome. Hardcore. But no matter what, it's a fire hose, right? Yep. And Lee and I really are interested in doing kind of what we want to call number nights, where we go in-depth to yeah. each number or concepts around the Enneagram, like stance work or harmony triads or whatever. But we couldn't figure out how to do number nights without, you know, and have people there who maybe don't know everything. So we decided to do this podcast where we do a number per podcast. And then once you've listened to them, you can come to the number so nights. ticket for entry to yes. the number night. Yeah. yeah. To go deeper. Yeah. And I'm a four- and Lee is a nine. Mm-hmm. And what else do we want to say about that? Um, we're both doing repress. So the fact that we are sitting here on your couch talking into microphones that we made made this happen, yeah, is it's awesome. I, we would, yeah, like, I was, we would like some applause. Really. Yeah, my original yeah. thought was, I, who could I get to do this? And I was thinking of all these people I was going to coerce <laughs> into doing this, namely Suzanne, right, yes. or, or Joey, or somebody. And then I'm like, we're going to do it. We're doing it. So here we look are. at us. So I say you start with. Okay, the- so this first um, podcast is going to be about uh, just an introduction, mm-hmm. and then we'll give you a brief overview of stances and of the triads, mm-hmm. and then we'll launch into each number. So Elizabeth and I are not uber interested in the um, history, math, all of the kind of five-ish intellectual parts of the Enneagram, uh, but it is an, a wisdom tradition, thousands of years old. It's an oral tradition, so nothing was really written down about it, at least in the West, until the 80s, 1980s. And um, it's different than any other personality tool in the sense that since it's an oral tradition, since it's a wisdom tradition, there is a lot of nuance and layers, and it's different than the Myers-Briggs in that way, or whatever color or animal or what, you know, any tests that you've taken in your office to figure out what your strengths or your gifts or your weaknesses are. This just has more depth to it, is my Mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like you can do a Myers-Briggs or you can do a strength finder, and then kind of there you are, right? And then it's kind of hard to know what to do with that information. But what I like about Enneagram work is that it kind of, what we've been calling it lately, kind of a 
blueprint for your own personal path to self-awareness right or kind of a map of where your self-deception lies yeah right which means you will you will have the same you might have the same reaction that you do to a myers-briggs or a disc or other personality tests and that you feel like you're being put in a box or that it is kind of limiting but the truth is it's going to open up a whole a whole path to you, a whole set of tools to help you get to where you want to go even faster. Mm-hmm. If you or as, if, if or you as, do the work, yeah. Or as Suzanne says, it shows you the box you're already in. Yeah. But Lee and I feel like it maybe it shows you the box you're already in, but it also kind of takes a lid off that box, right? I love and that image. there's so much there's so much space for growth in yeah. in the box that you're in, right? And yeah. it's it's kind of yeah. unlimited. It's unlimited, and um, like being someone who's a 12-stepper, someone who's been in therapy for 10 years. It's a tool that I put on top of all that and honestly, I would say, helps me on a daily basis more than anything I've tried. Yeah. <laughs> anything. So. And I have written down here, it's it's basically magi- magical. Yeah. It's magic if you do the work. Right. Yeah. So the Enneagram tells us how all of us process and see the world in nine different ways. Uh, we don't all see the same things. We don't all take in the things we see in the same way. Also, the Enneagram is the nine ways that we protect our essence or our true self or our soul. There are so many ways depending on what you're comfortable with, but the part of you that is the truest part. So we all have different language depending on our culture, but depending on our spiritual lives, depending on our journey, how we refer to that. But it's the part that you want to live out of, I would say. So whatever you call that, the Enneagram is nine different ways that we kind of protect that part of ourselves. And that's your personality. So it expresses the nine ways we lie to ourselves about who we are. Mm. Um, nine ways we cope. The nine ways we cope. Armor the nine, up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, which I, you know, we were just talking before we started re- uh, recording this podcast. One of the <laughs> ways I armor up is I want to be in control. And as strange as it sounds, sitting here on this couch, having a conversation <laughs> with you feels conflictual to me. Yeah. And so without the Enneagram, I might just have not shown up. I might oh. not be sitting on this couch and Hooray. doing this work. So Hooray here we are. Yeah. All right. So another thing that's really different about this tool is that it, um, the nine ways that you see and take in the world, the nine numbers, the nine types are based on your motivation. And so we describe those through our um our behaviors generally and a caricature of our number, but this is usually why we would encourage people not to take the test, why we wanted to do this podcast and say out loud, um, do an overview of all nine types. Mm -hmm. So you can start to hear the nuance of each number and relate to the motivation because you will see yourself in all nine types. You mm-hmm. might have behaviors that fall in all nine categories. If you take a test online, depending on uh, how you'd like to behave or how you see yourself behaving, you can um, just turn out to be basically any number based on behavior. So right. keep listening as or, you go like through the Like our friend intro. David took the test online and the test told him he was a four because he was feeling forward and had all these feelings. Yeah, and he was sitting in my example. kitchen saying... 
you know, I, I walk into rooms and I feel everyone's feelings all the time. And I just want to fix everyone's feelings all the time. But I don't really know how I feel. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, my God, you're a two. But right. a right. test online cannot mark the nuances of those kinds of things. So it's not like you and I are sitting here going, hey, don't take tests because we want you to come to us or we're trying to make it inaccessible. We want it to be accessible and we don't want people to get mistyped online and then not have it be valuable to them. Right, right. right. To miss out and to miss out on the journey about why why they're behaving the way we behave, right? right. So um, keep listening and know that you're, Again, your culture, your family, your workplace, um, whatever you've had to do to fit in, to be successful, that those things can kind of dictate your behavior in ways that you're not aware of. But that doesn't mean that those behaviors define your Enneagram number. So we're going to keep kind of peeling the layers back and looking and listening for what motivates you. The Enneagram, as our teacher Suzanne says, shows you your compulsion. So predictive, patterned, habitual behavior. So these are, we just continually do the things that we don't want to do. We make the same mistakes again and again. We get into the same relationship patterns, you know, all the ways that we continue to make the choices that we thought we wouldn't make again. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, This tool, when you utilize it, and you utilize it through, I'm hand talking on a podcast, um, by by observing yourself non-judgmentally. So if once you start to realize that your compulsive pattern behavior, then you can see it and hopefully stop and Mm -hmm. choose something different, right? So the first step in all of this work, no matter what you're doing, any inner work is to start observing yourself and be aware of what you're up to. Because before, if you're not aware of what you're up to, then you can't Mm -hmm. choose something different. Mm -hmm. And the Enneagram is just a really good tool to show you what you're up to. Um, And some people don't want to know what they're up to. Oh, no. And so some people come to these things and really never figure out their number and some of that's because they just don't want to know. Yeah. 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 I agree. I was thinking this week cuz we taught a couple of courses how many people you kind of see it wash over them when they hear their number. It's kind of like feeling like um I've looked under your mattress or uh pulled your drawers open and mm-hmm. have been through through your whole house and you see that on people's faces and then depending on what they're open to, they get really interested in talking about their spouse or <laughs> this friend or their parents or whoever uh, instead of looking at themselves. And so that's another good reminder as you go through this podcast. Listen for you because you can't know the motivations of others. You you can't know that. And so this is a tool f- that will help you in relationships Certainly. Absolutely. But only if you do your work. Right. So it's not a way to manipulate others or box them in. Right. To make them easier for you to relate to. You have to do that work on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see. We've already talked about, does it put you in the box? Um, no. But it can feel negative, I think, when you are are learning it. And mm-hmm. that's because we have to start somewhere. And I think introductory 
can kind of feel a bit like a caricature. Mm -hmm. So as we go through the types of numbers, we're starting at the beginning. And so we can't get to all the layers that we want to pull back on our number nights and um, in the deeper conversations that you have to start somewhere. And that somewhere can feel a little negative and it can feel um, like a caricature of the type. So you Mm -hmm. won't you won't connect with every single behavior that we describe related to the numbers, but you have to keep going back to the motivation. So listen deeper, even as we talk at an introductory level. So have your ear tuned into your heart and into your your motivation, even as we describe behaviors. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you can't change your number and you can't grow out of it and you can't be (laughs) all the numbers and you can't be a 10 or a 12. Um, You just can't. You are your number and there are lots of things that influence, again, how that number expresses itself in behaviors and in your relationships, but you are that number. That's who you are. So stop it. Stop it when you're like, I'm a 12. We get super annoyed. Um, Don't do it. Don't say you're a 10. Uh, It has nothing to do with uh, birth order. Do we want to get into the nature-nurture thing? I I do. I do. I think a lot of people want to talk about nature-nurture. And um, I listened to something recently. I don't know if I should say this, but it was saying that your number is 100% nature. And your subtype, which we'll get into later, yes, is uh, maybe a hundred percent nurture. Sorry, I'm confusing myself. Based on myself. your family, based yeah. on yeah. And so, you know, I I think Lee and I believe that you're just you're born with what you are. You're born with how you see. Yeah. You just come into the world that way, and whatever happens to you, uh, you respond to that trauma. You respond to the way your parents raise you out of your number right and two different kids in one family different numbers respond to their parents out of their numbers maybe they, they they experience the same trauma they respond differently out of their numbers yeah so yeah. and there are other theories um and I, that's I, I where we'll land can i read this why yes you can okay I, I like it because i think when i learned the enneagram at first i got really into kind of all the things my like my childhood wound and all the things my parents did to me right which is not helpful right and so i like the way he talks about this um he says perhaps the enneagram's childhood wound might be better framed as the way we absorb the burden of our caregivers transferring their shadow as children we internalize the pain of imperfect upbringings because we didn't have the psychological capacity to process the impression of our caregiver's shadow, which develops when we let our pain go unprocessed or unresolved. Our shadow, our shadow, and we all have one, is the part of our ego we are unable to consciously recognize. So then he goes on to say, this internalization of pain isn't a real wound per se, but a result of transmitting and absorbing our human inability to love perfectly as well as receive love perfectly. So I think that puts it all on us equally. It's like a democratic deal. We're all deal. wounded. We're all wounded. We're all on this world unable to love perfectly mm-hmm. and be loved perfectly. One of the things I like about the Enneagram is it shows us kind of the ways in which we habitually don't love perfectly or habitually or receive love perfectly. Exactly. Yeah. And so 
when I read that, it gives me grace for like all the ways in which we're just all of us are wired in different ways not to be able to do that, right? And um, to sit here and think about like what my mom or dad did completely doesn't help the ways in which I can actually work on the ways in which I responded to that. You know, that's something I can do something about, and that's something I can um, transform yes. in my life. And, and that's a good word is transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so nature versus not nurture. nurture. Right. Okay. Do we want to talk more about false self versus true self? Um, we did a little bit of that. Sure. But basically, the idea is, and this is a little counterintuitive, I think. So we are going to be talking about you as a type, as a number, and kind of helping you find your way to which one of the types, how do you see the world, and telling you that that's not who you are. So... Mm-hmm. What we put on our Enneagram type is our personality. You can talk about it as your ego. It's really good in lots of ways. We need an ego. We need to be able to make our th- way through the world that there's there's a lot of hard stuff in reality. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. It's, it is too much. So your Enneagram number is not necessarily a bad thing, your personality, which we call your false self, but... When you are asleep to it, when you don't know how it's helping you make your way through the world, that's when it becomes kind of the dark or the shadow. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to recognize that, your personality, to start to take it off or um, have a little bit of a say over how you respond. Mm -hmm. uh, Suzanne likes to say, and we'll say Suzanne a lot, and that will always be referring to our teacher, Suzanne Stabil, who gifted us with this knowledge, or a lot of this knowledge. And so she likes to say, you can never change the way you see, but you can change what you do with what you see. So you're always going to see the world and try to make your way through the world as your type. But... If that's not benefiting you, if it's not helping you get closer to transformation, then doing this work helps you to see how you are doing that and then make a different choice with what you see. That was a lot of C's and do's. I hope that made sense. <laughs> so it's, it is, I think, in wisdom tradition, there's always this both and that can feel a little hokey. Uh, if you if you read any, I do a lot of work around grief, and a lot of the deep truths of grief can kind of sound hokey until you go through them yourself. So I think as you do this work, a lot of what we're saying here at the beginning will start to make sense. If you're not doing it, then it can sound kind of cheesy and hokey, like <laughs> like wisdom tradition does, which mm-hmm. is an interesting thing, mm-hmm. uh, that it can sound a little Pollyannish or uh, simple. Yeah. But when you start to do the work, it just opens up. Yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. So how you do this work is that you have to, to start observing yourself. So you can think of it as your third eye, uh, you're kind of can kind of float above yourself and just think, there I go again. And the tricky part is to do that in a non-judgmental way. Yeah. Right? Uh, and th- once you can get in the habit of doing that and then take on board your Enneagram number to notice maybe why you're up to those things, 
then you can start to choose differently. But just knowing your number doesn't really do much if you don't observe yourself in your number. Right. If we're all in our numbers, not self-observing, then we're all kind of... um Somebody last night was talking about a choir of soloists. Yes. And we don't want to be choirs of soloists in our numbers. We we all want to kind of be self-aware of the ways in which we're habitually walking through the world and choose differently, which means we're all kind of walking towards each other and actually all starting to look less like numbers, right? Right. Yeah. Right. That we're all living a little more out of our true self, I yeah. think. Yeah. So step one is going to always be self-observation, non-judgmental self-observation. And that's where you start to do the hard work of um, integrating and transforming uh, to become more of your true self. And I think that's another reason why we feel compelled to do the podcast Yeah, is that um, the Enneagram is kind of having a a day. Uh, I think with social media, it's a fun thing to talk about on Instagram. It's a fun thing to meme about, right? And there's some really funny things out there. But what it does is, and I'm not against them, but it kind of perpetuates a light personality typing thing that we can all just ha ha about or talk about at a party, but doesn't actually help us very much. And then I think the other thing out there is, um, I mean, there's a lot of Enneagram stuff out there that's specifically religious that's not really available to as many people, right? So I think Lee and I really want it to be available to everybody, mm-hmm. but also also be transformational. So be a spiritual tool, but be inclusive to everyone. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason that we are sitting here is that it has been for both of us just a great tool of transformation. Absolutely. And and it continues to be in super surprising ways. (laughs) Like you never arrive. I mean, I was just neurotic, you know, 15 minutes before about my number and doing this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, great. Okay. Anything else that we want to say before we get to triads and stances? Anything we skipped Mm -mm, over? No, I think that's good. Okay. So we love the Enneagram. And here's just kind of an introduction to, uh, as we move into the numbers, the ways that the numbers are made up through three centers of intelligences. The three centers of intelligence uh, are thinking, feeling, and doing. And the nine types on the Enneagram come from the available combination of these intelligences. Mm-hmm. So we'll start with the triads. The triads are the type's dominant center of intelligence. So it's how you take in what you see. So it's where um, what you see goes first, right? What you utilize the most. And the heart triad, also known as the feeling triad or the shame triad, mm-hmm are the types two, three, and four. And the triads are numbers that are going to be right next to each other in groups of three. So heart is two, three, and four. And Father Richard Rohr says um, this triad, so this triad takes in the world through their emotions. They are super aware of how people respond to them, what people think of them. Uh, They're not not necessarily gushy-feely, people, but they are walking around, taking in the world through their emotions. Now, sometimes 
they can be removed from their own because they're really good at reading everybody else's emotions. And in fact, all of them are pretty, can be disconnected. You'll, you'll fight back about the fours not being <laughs> disconnected. But they are really good at feeling other people's feelings, not so good at, at their own all the time. So, But that's their dominant way of moving through the world is taking in through their feelings. Another thing to know about this triad is that if you just kind of scratch below the surface, shame is always kind of hanging out there, that they can transmit, transmute just about any emotion or experience into shame. They're, they're kind of masterful at that, and that's really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, defining shame is that being ashamed of something is being kind of guilty or feeling, yeah, guilty. feeling guilty for something mm-hmm. or feeling bad about something you did mm-hmm. right but shame is feeling bad about who you are yeah i think it's a heavy word and i think people Ooh. push back from it a lot yeah. but as a four it's pretty evident to me that when i'm misbehaving it's usually and if i'm being if i'm putting stuff on other people you know and being messy in any way uh, or prickly, or aggressive, or you know, any any way in which I'm misbehaving, right? Or uh, it's because fundamentally it comes back to me yeah. and feeling some way in which I'm not feeling like enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I've told you when I've taught this kind of over longer periods of time, like a semester long class, it's always interesting. And each triad will do this, and different. Different teachers, different books will say different things and give different uh, nomenclature to this. And sometimes heart triad people want to say anxiety, which is interesting. And Mm so sometimes I let them hang out there for a while. (laughs) But as we go deeper, you start to you start to be like, okay, it's shame. That's what's hanging out. Yeah, I think we have to stick with that because anxiety could go into the fear situation, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's so. So if you feel yourself pushing back on that, just hold that and just even almost feel like I almost feel like all of us could push back on fear, shame, anger, and say, "Oh, it's actually anxiety. It's actually this." Here we are in the age of anxiety. There's so much being talked about about anxiety right now, right? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that that's kind of prescient right that we're, that we all feel Name like it's it. anxiety but mm-hmm. really it's some it's shame it's, it's something something that you want and you want to be aware of because that's mm-hmm. where the transformation happens right. right okay so another center of intelligence is the head thinking or fear triad and those types are five six and seven and this group they take in the world through their head through their thoughts, through their thought systems, through their categories, that they're using their head to connect to reality. Ideas. Ideas. Uh, Everything goes through their mind, through their head, before they meet you, before they meet what's in front of them. So you can kind of feel a little observed by this group or Mm -hmm. pushed past, like you're not seen. or, And it's because... They're they're observing so intensely and taking in the world through their head. Head people believe in competency as a cure for instability. And I remember the first time I read that out loud downstairs, and Nathaniel was like, 
Yep. So competency is key. It looks different for each head Mm -hmm. type, what they're after. Um, But competency is what they're trying to utilize to kind of quell the fear, to kind of tamp it down, to make sure they're safe, all the different ways that they do that. And each one is motivated in a different way. But because right below the surface is fear, if they can grasp some competency, if they can make sense of things, they think that that would make them feel safe or that would make the fear step aside. Anything else there? That's That's good. That's good. I think that's good. Okay. So we have heart, head, and then the final triad is the gut, body, or doing triad, also known as the anger triad. Rage is what Suzanne would say. I prefer anger. I'm a nine. (laughs) But rage rage is there. So these are the, the eight, nine, and one. And this group is taking in reality um, through their gut, through their belly, through their instinctual center. And I know we're in a podcast, but I it's, still have from way back when Father Rohr has a, a DVD set where he's teaching in front of this little chalkboard and he he's moves his hands in and out and kind of shows reality coming at these people like a wave. And I just always have a picture of him in my head when we talk about gut people and they just are taking in everything and it's all coming through their gut. And because of that, they're a little irritated, which is the anger. So there's, there's always just this level of irritation because they're Everything is coming at them all the time. They respond in different ways to that irritation, but they're reading the, the world. They're reading reality through their instincts, through their gut. Uh, that means sometimes it can get mixed up with feelings or feeling language, but usually there's not words for how we can talk about it, right? So gut instinct or listening to your instincts. Sometimes we talk about like the hair on the back of your neck or, oh, I knew that, but I didn't know how to say it. Those These people feel that way a lot. Mm. Like they know something, but they can't tell you how they know necessarily. Mm. And they know that about a lot of things. So in that, there's this irritation and anger. This group usually has an instant like or dislike to most things. They have a deep knowing, deep knowing that's difficult to articulate is how I would say it. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to help you there. Not going to be able to help you there. <laughs> I can't. And I it, certainly cannot articulate it. Yeah. Yeah. I would like people to yeah, and I think comment I, and, and let, that, us, let us know how they describe that if they're in the 891. It triad. is. You know, I used to think that I felt deeply until I started doing some different kind of training around... Um, you know, like therapy and things, and I couldn't say how I felt. Mm-hmm. So it, it's t- distinct from feelings, but it sure does feel like feelings. But it's 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 really an instinctual kind of knowing that mm-hmm. is hard to find words for. Um, okay, and so this group is, if you just scratch right below the surface, they can transmute just about anything into anger, which we'll get into the different types of that as we move on. So those are the three three centers of intelligence. Just quick review. So heart or feeling or shame is two, threes, and fours. Head, thinking, fear triad, five, six, and seven. The gut, body, or doing, or anger triad, eight, nine, and one. All right. Now, so in each of these triads, 
there is one number of each stance. And the stances are determined by what is underdeveloped or repressed in each number. For example, in the heart triad, there's one of each stance. And the stances are aggressive, dependent, and withdrawing. So there is a heart, in the heart triad, there's an aggressive number, a dependent number, and a withdrawing number. That probably sounds like gibberish right now, but Elizabeth and I, we love the stances because this is silly to say, but it's like where the work is, it's the money right there. That's where you want to go. It is where the most bang for your buck, I guess, is Mm -hmm. the best way to say it. it. It's, to me, the real magic. Yes. When you start to bring up what is repressed in you. Yeah, and and Suzanne talks about how as a as a child, somewhere in your childhood, you learned early on that one of those intelligences stands back, right? So for me in the withdrawing stance, doing stand st- stood down as a child. And because it's the least used f- for me, when I learn how to bring it up, it's also the most pure. So um, the fact that I use it the least is what gets me into trouble. And when I'm able to bring it up, not only do I, does it make make things work better for me or make me feel better or however you want to describe that, but it also shows me parts of myself that have power and shimmer that I didn't even know, you know, yeah. I had on board. And so... Um, it's it's beautiful in two ways. It's beautiful in that it shows you where your issues are, yeah. and it shows you the way out of them. But it also shows you where your sh- where your shine is. Yeah, yeah. I lo- you've you've used that the last couple of times we've talked. That uh-huh. the part of you, I like the, to think of it as your shimmer, and yeah. you kind of feel a little awkward. Yes. at first. Yes, but, and yeah, that was the other thing yeah. she said is it's the least used so the least the most pure part of you mm-hmm. but also maybe the most awkward when kind of like a baby th- giraffe it's mm-hmm. a muscle that's not used right yeah. it's an unpracticed muscle yeah. so when you start using the muscle it kind of uh it's a little immature right it's yeah. a little awkward yeah. but the more you use it the, that's where that's where it's at well and it's so it's reasonable for us to when I say we have three centers of intelligences that you have thinking, feeling, and doing, and that you need all three of those ways, and it's standard kind of wisdom tradition if you go and read, that we need all of those to make our way through the world, right? But because the, the wisdom of the Enneagram tells us that we've set one of them aside, so that's where our stances come from. And so you're kind of like a two-legged stool that should have three legs, and so you're always a little off and not quite balanced and and how you're taking in reality and then doing what's yours to do mm-hmm. in the world. So the aggressive stance are threes, sevens, and eights. And this group is feeling repressed. So threes in the heart triad, sevens in the head triad, eight in the gut triad. They avoid feelings or repress them Because they don't necessarily like the surprise or unexpected. The lack of control. They do not like the lack of control of emotion, what that looks like or what that feels feels like to them. So they have developed ways to set their feelings aside. And we'll get into this when we talk about threes. But you, you heard me just say that threes are in 
the heart triad. So they're feeling dominant, but they're also feeling repressed. And that has to do with how they read the world. But then they set aside their own feelings. So they take in the world through their feelings, but set aside their own. And we'll get deeper into that in a bit. This group is future oriented. So they are moving ahead. They are, you, you can you feel that about them. They, you know, when they're in a room, they take up space. They are, they're just moving forward, mm-hmm. moving forward. Were you going to say something? I was just going to say that I, I mean, I think it's dangerous to say that you can sort of know somebody <laughs> that way. But I think with aggressive numbers, you kind of do. You kind of do. Yeah. You kind of, you can meet somebody and go, they're, they're, I think they're in the aggressive stance. Yeah. And kind of how I think about it, I, I take very seriously the fact that I I can't know someone's number, but I can generally pick up on this energy. energy. It's a very specific energy. And it's just energy. helpful. Yeah. It's helpful to know. So it you can pick up on it. Uh, this group has an unconscious drive to reshape reality. I think that's so important. It, this, to me, is the most aggressive part of who they are. <laughs> to me. <laughs> It's, it's also how they get so much done. Though. It's how they get a lot done. So they see reality. So they see what's in front of them and they make it what they want it to be. And it doesn't actually matter if it changes. <laughs> but and that they, feels productive and and normal to them. It feel yes. they feel entitled to that. It's an immediate sense that it is anything that's problematic or anything that's not how they want it they are equipped and it is theirs to do to change it right yes so like threes do that by making things a success that might be a failure Mm -hmm. right they just make it a success Mm -hmm. and they're really good at it yes sevens make it you know well you've we've talking a lot about them being in control but we joke that a seven probably did come up with the phrase it's all good so Mm -hmm. no matter what is happening however they want it to be they're going to make it good for them. That's right. Good right? for them. Good is for important. them is important. Because good for them doesn't necessarily mean fun. Right. Yeah. Right. So if that, that might mean they have to exit the situation. Yeah. Um, they, so this group, they are just masters at orienting reality around their own ideas and responses. Yeah. And that is super aggressive. <laughs> It's it super aggressive. It's super aggressive yeah. to, to uh, I mean, we're to in the us. withdrawing stance, so it feels yeah. aggressive. It's also very, you know, I mean, they, where would we be without where them? Where would we be? There were, a lot of things would not be getting done. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that is that they kind of see what's possible. Right. They're visionary. They are visionary. Yeah. Dragging us behind them. Yeah. It's good. Okay. So moving ahead, uh, dependent stance. In this stance we have... Ones, twos, and sixes, and this um, stance has repressed thinking. So that doesn't mean that they're not smart, um, that it's not intellectual. It's about productive thinking. So productive thinking to interpret their feelings, what they're doing, to kind of balance out those other two centers. We'll go around the triads real quick. So ones are in the gut triad, so they're the dependent um, stance in the gut. Twos are the dependent stance in the heart. And six sixes are the dependent stance in the thinking triad. So basically, this group just does not 
stop to think productively about how they're taking in and responding to reality. They are looking outside of themselves for what they need. So they have to have some sort of feedback from others is maybe how I would say it, that they don't trust their own experience of themselves. So that's another way to think about the word dependent, that they are really dependent on others in the moment to um, tell them what they're looking for. And part of bringing up their thinking is to start to trust their own experience, right? Mm -hmm. Suzanne um, is a two on the Enneagram. And she, every time we've taught this, every time I've taught dependent stance and I talk about this, she talks about chaining, that this is what dependent stance, all dependent stance uh, folks do. Just like a paper chain that you would make at Christmas where you glue together the, the pieces of construction paper, that whatever the event is, whatever, uh, maybe it's a conversation you have with someone or something you see on the news or, you know, whatever reality something is in front of you, wrong. something goes wrong. So you take this one event and in just the blink of an eye, you have made a chain of events that could wrap around an entire Christmas tree. So if I'm a dependent stance and... Elizabeth says to me that maybe I bring a gift over for Christmas and you say, oh, thanks. And then set it aside because you're busy making dinner for Christmas. And I interpret that in the moment of you don't like my gift. And then before I can stop myself, I'm thinking that you think, why did I invite Lee for Christmas? <laughs> what, what What is she doing here? And you've never liked me. And I've gone back 10 years and I make, you know, this whole chain of events to something that it's not even connected to. And and you're, I don't know if I explained that I mean, well. Don't, don't you feel like it's like you, you immediately have access to change to various things throughout your life yes. that support the the what's happening right in that moment. How you want to take? And they that may in. be unrelated, but they all kind of support this unproductive thinking that you're in at that moment. Yes, and then you say out loud, you know, where your chain ends to the people around you, and they look at you like you have three heads because they have not been on your chain ride with you, right? And. They have no idea how you've connected all of those things. Right. And that's happening fairly constantly for this dependent stance. And so when you think about bringing up productive thinking, when the dependent stance does that, they can stop the chain closer to the actual event, right? That yeah. they don't have to get all the way to the end and they can start to think, are these things connected? Nope. They can let it be isolated. And they can let it be an isolated event. And have a response to that isolated event. Exactly. Yeah. And all dependent numbers have to process and work on this out loud. Yeah. So we've all, I think we've all had the experience that when we say something out loud that's been bouncing around in our head or in our heart, that when we say it out loud, we think, oh, that wasn't what I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And this group has to do that all the time. They have to say out loud their chaining experience and have someone look at them and say, well, you see how those are not connected or let's just even just true. saying them out loud. Yeah. It's not, you know, yeah. they figure out that it's not true. Yeah, exactly. So chaining and processing out loud are two big things with this uh, stance. Thinking repressed, processing out loud is how they're going to work on bringing up productive thinking. 
Finally, we have the withdrawing stance, <laughs> and uh, that's four, fives, and nines, and four in the heart triad, five in the head, and nine in the gut. And this group is doing repressed. So that doesn't mean that they're not doing or that we're lazy. Uh, we just are not always doing what needs to be done. Yeah. Or we're just doing what we want to do. Or do. <laughs> or, yeah, doing what we want to do. Which for me usually means I have, in, have here what we, uh, in parentheses, is tinkering. So mm-hmm. I always joke that I just would love to tinker every day. I don't even know what that means half the time. But I feel like I've done a lot and have done nothing that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. So, again... Uh, We're walking around without productive doing. So this group, whereas the the dependent stance is looking outside of themselves for what they need, this group is way too into themselves. (laughs) So everything they need uh, is inside. Their inner world is their real world. Uh, It's naturally isolating. And uh, a lot of us are daydreamers or have lots of private thoughts and lots of, uh, you're a little, I feel like you're a little more of an out loud processor. I'm pretty verbal. You're pretty verbal. Yeah. Uh, Where, so I'm a nine, Elizabeth's a four, and then Elizabeth's husband's a five. And I, I mean, would, I think all my verbal processing is a way of, um, you know, part of my four message of being seen for who I am. Yeah. I'm deeply invested in showing that to you in all the ways. Yes. Yes. And in a nauseating amount of, you know, that's what I'm up to. So, so that could feel a little different. So that's a good example yeah. of how here we're trying to des- describe what it means to be a withdrawing stance. And I'm using this example, mm-hmm. but Elizabeth is going to look a little different. Right. Or right? somebody just who knows me yeah. might think I'm, a one, two, or six, right? Because I'm always yes. verbally processing. Yes. Right? Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. But the you know, but the reason I'm just talking about my feelings all the time or verbally processing, however you want to say that, is because I want to be known. Yes. Yeah. So, so totally different motivation. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Nathaniel and I, this we have all this interior stuff going on and we keep it there. Yeah. You which hold can it make there. us feel really hidden or mm-hmm. secretive. And so it can feel a little disconnected sometimes mm-hmm. that we have this very internal world and we don't always invite folks in. And I kind of think y'all maybe think that we just know, maybe. We kind of do. Like, I think uh, Nathaniel has all these thoughts in his head, and he kind of just thinks that's somehow magically visible or known, yes. right? Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always surprised, not always, but lots of times surprised when I, because I process so much internally that I feel like when I do speak out loud, I've been talking about it so much sometimes. Inside yourself. Inside that myself. It feels like you did it outside. It feels like I'm just yeah. burdening you with too much. Right. So it's an interesting disconnect. Totally. Very active inner world. Yeah. Large interior castle. <laughs> so because we are not so good at doing what needs to be done and our doing doing center is repressed or... Undeveloped? Undeveloped. Underdeveloped. Yeah. Okay. So... This group is not good at acting on their own behalf lots of times. Self-advocacy. Self-advocacy, doing what needs to be done. You can, all of that is wrapped up into 
they're doing repression. And mm-hmm. all of us have different work to do to bring it up. But um, in general, all three of these numbers are not good at acting on their own Or behalf. it doesn't occur to us that mm-hmm. there's something we could do. That we or could even do. That it doesn't occur to us that we have, um, that that is the space that we're meant to occupy. That we're not entitled, but that we... I mean, have some, a place, maybe? That we have a place to, to do that. I mean, I think uh, in some ways it can be really sad when you see somebody in the withdrawing mm-hmm. stance who's such a an expert or has such wisdom on mm-hmm. board for something, and it doesn't occur to them that this is the situation where you use that and step into that. Yeah. Right? Well, and I think I'm just looking at us right now that this is such an important tool for us. Mm-hmm. We have been working with it for a long time. We're not I don't think either one of us would say we're Enneagram masters, not by Mm-mm, a stretch. Not at all. But that our experience of working with it has transformed us. Yeah. But because we're both doing repressed, for a long time it would not even occur to either of us to, I mean, I, t- to I teach it. I said it out loud all the time. I'm yeah, never doing never it. never teaching. We could that. never know enough. Yeah. We could never have these conversations. And that took like three or four, year, three or mm-hmm. four years mm-hmm. since we finished our apprenticeship. That mm-hmm. we feel like, we, and even now, I tremble a bit because I think, gosh, I don't know enough to be doing this. Right. But what we're learning to do is to trust our own experience and know that we want to have deeper conversations and love the folks we're around right. and kind of be create community, create community, yeah. and transform those relationships. Yes. And offer what we've found. Yes. Yeah. So. That's what I got for intro. Okay, I think okay. that's good. Any other big quotes that you want to? I think read? I want to read my James Baldwin quote, read which it. is read I came across this the other day, and it's "Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without, and no, we cannot live within," which I think is another way of talking about enneagram. So I think enneagram takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without our personalities, right? right. And also, once it takes them off, what we know we cannot live within, because our personalities take care of us, but they also kind of enslave us. Um, And then James Baldwin goes on to say, I use the word love here, not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace, not in the infantile American sense of being made happy, but in the tough and universal sense of quest and daring and growth and I think that's what that's what this is so good yeah don't have it with me it made me think of I can't I can't remember exactly it was Emily McDowell quote on Instagram but she said if if we if we talked about self-growth or love in that way that we always think about self-growth being this easy peasy blissful thing but if we talked about the hard work of growth that mm-hmm. nobody would really want to do it right you know right and so you really do have to it's hard work but that's it's also a, what love is right it's muscular you know, it's muscular it's building those muscles mm-hmm. yeah all right Yay. well stay tuned for each number we're gonna roll them out one at a time mm-hmm. so thanks for listening thanks for listening